Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Okay, so we are going to go in three, two, one. Lions Lounge Lockdown, episode 14. Jamie Morley joining us. Jamie, thanks for your time, mate. Thank you for having me. Can't wait. Looking forward to this one. We've been talking a lot over social media, and you, you do really up the feeling I've got is you remember your days from Millwall very, very fondly. Yeah, I've got to say, I mean, I had a seventeen career, seventeen year career, a lot of a lot of ups, many many downs. But I look back at my two years at the Den as probably the best, not mm. just from a, a playing and a personal point of view in terms of yeah, I scored a few goals and stuff, but. Just the camaraderie, just the, the relationship amongst lads, just a whole stronger together mentality that Mick McCarthy built over the period that I was there. I never really ever really found that again, no matter where I went. And that, like I say, that was at Crystal Palace and at Watford. Um, I went on to play for Brighton, um, Crew, Colchester, Royal Antwerp. So I, I went and sampled a few of the enemies. Um, uh, but I've got to say that if I if I if, if if someone stuck a gun to me, the two years that I had at Millwall were fantastic times. Well, you joined the club from Crystal Palace. There's a little bit of an, an old wives' tale slash rumor, call it what you will. That was you part of Chris Armstrong deal? Yeah, yeah. I, yeah. Was. Um, I think where it come from. Um, I was playing at Crystal Palace, and we had Wright and Bright up front. And me and Stan Collymore were in the, what you call now the 23s. Yeah, and we were pushing and pushing the twenty threes and scoring quite a lot of goals, but there was no way we was ever going to get in front of right and bright at the time. So Stan went to South End, and then he was ringing me up saying to me, "Core, you know, just to feel that I'm like, you know, I'm going to play on a Saturday, and the feeling that you know you're playing for points on a Saturday, and lads that are paying for their mortgages opposed to I was in the twenty threes at Crystal Palace, the eight, uh, the reserve team, as it was in a combination. We had a real great Great team. I mean, people, um, Ricky Newman, who went on and played for Palace, was in it. Tony Witter, who went on and played for Palace. Um, Gareth Southgate, Simon Osborne, Simon Roger, Dean Gordon, Andy Woodman. I mean, we produced a real good um, a development youth team at Crystal Palace. And then I started to score some goals in the 23s and got a bit recognised. And Steve Coppel's assistant manager was a guy... Um, 
at the time. Uh, and he he then went and got the job at, uh, at Millwall. And straight away, um, I think Ian Wright went to um, uh, Ian Evans. Uh, uh, Ian Wright went to Arsenal and they were looking for a more of a, a, a seasoned centre-forward. So uh, Steve Coppel rung up for Chris Armstrong and his assistant had just gone become Mick McCarthy's assistant, Ian right. Evans, Taff. Yeah, yeah, Taff, yeah, yeah. Uh, become Mick, come on Mick McCarthy's, and he went. Listen, we'll do the deal if we can get the young striker from your from your reserves morally to come as part of the deal. And and uh, and the deal got done. I think in about the October, uh, because the transfer windows weren't like it is of today. Of course, we yeah, could only yeah. go in January in the summer. It was more opened and seasonal. So uh, so Chris went to Palace. I went to Millwall, and uh, I think I I. Um, I made my debut, obviously, um, in the Upton Park game, but it was Charlton when they were ground sharing live on the London match. Live on the London match when the likes of um, Barry was it Barry Moore or whatever his name is. Brian do, Moore, yeah, Brian Moore. Brian Moore used to do the uh, the um, yeah the uh, and it's great times with Saint Saint and Greasy. So they were really how it sort of unfolded. Really, I was happy enough at Palace, but when I got the opportunity to to be a bit closer to the first team, knowing Ian Evans, he was the one that really um, catapulted it. And I already then, uh, Phil Barber was already in, in, the, in the first team squad at Mill and I knew him from Palace. And uh, I knew the reputations were raw, so I knew that I had to, to hit the ground running. Mm. You know, at these times, I had the, like, the blonde highlights and there weren't a lot of me. I was like a skinny lad. And I think if I thought, if I don't hit the ground rowing it, row, running here, these, uh, these Millwall Dockers, these Bermondsey boys could, could, could end me very quickly. The score at my, my away debut at Cholton and then the following week, my home debut at Wolves. And I think then I got six in eight or nine games. Mm. Quickly, um, you know, they took to me. And they started to sing a few songs and made me feel home and welcome. And that sort of Millwall rivalry sort of went out the window a little bit. And I become one of their own. And uh, and I, like I said, two fantastic years there. Yeah, but so you did hit the ground running. That was in my notes. And you, you took the words out of, out of my mouth. You hit the ground completely running. Um, what did Big Mick say? What's your first impressions of Big Mick? And how did he did he have to sell the club to you, or was you already sort of you know more of a, more of a first team opportunity? But still, the manager got to say the right things, didn't he? Yeah, for sure. I mean, I never knew him or met him before, and when I uh, when I went and, when I when I come down to New Cross Gate and and I was picked up by someone that was doing a deal at the time, the way the old agents used to work, and he he took me to the old den, and I remember him before I met him, I went and walked around in the stadium, and it was just such a daunting when you come out the the the, the tunnel and there was the grill above your head, and then it sort of opened up. And the pitch was immaculate, but it just had a right feel about it. And I just thought to myself, you know, if I could get going here and Teddy, you know, you heard the, you know, the likes of Teddy Sheringham and Tony Cascarino were full, full and forwards of, of years gone by. I just thought to myself, you know, it's a daunting place, but I know that if the fans get behind you here, you're going to feel, you're going to feel loved. And then when I met Mick, he told me a few stories and he, he told me that, you know, listen, they're gonna. It could be love or hate. You know, there's no real mixed messages at this football club. He was a real opposing guy, and he was he, he was straight from the beginning. 
and he was straight until the day I left. And I've got to say, for me, the top manager, what a guy. I mean, we can go on and talk about Mick in greater detail as, the, as it unfolds. But an opposing man that was fair, honest, led by example, but at the same time, you know, he wouldn't be shy to offer you out or have a straighten with you at half-time if you was one or two down or you weren't pulling your weight. It don't matter how big or small you were. If you wanted, if you know, if you want, if you wanted to go, you know, to go to go putting your finger in people's faces, it'll go toe to toe with you. And I just love that about him. You know, he, the younger lads thought, oh, hold on a minute, you knew you knew you had to toe the line, and you could take no liberties with him. Yeah, well, so he was um, at this point. He was a, he was in the very very early stages of his managerial career. His first job, he started almost to play a revolt against Bruce Rioch. So was he still sort of in the? Was he still player manager then, or had he gone solely to managing? Uh, I think he might have, when I come that season, he still might have been under the pl player-manager role, but he had probably decided because I'd come in and around, I think it was, I didn't come at the start of the season, I come about October. Yeah. I think at that point he probably said, thought to himself, I ain't going to play no more. Maybe the odd, uh, I don't know, something van, the Delphi van, or some van competition, might you might have played the odd gaming, but just to get all the combination games, just to, to help the boys coming through at the time, like your Ben Thatchers and your Andy Roberts, you know, um, we, we, we had, a, whilst I was there, we had a fantastic youth team that were coming through and, I, I, you know, the dominance that them guys were showing, like, you know, Tony Dolby and Neville Gordon and uh, Jeff Pitcher, Jermaine Wright, uh, Paul Irving, Swerve, you know, what character he was, top boy, uh, Steve Harris, you know, great underbelly of talent coming out of South London, that Mark Kennedy, that I just remember that, you know, it was a real togetherness. We all trained at the same dated training ground, as it were, at Elton, but everybody was under the same hub. There wasn't any like it is today where first team train here and, and, the, and the reserves and the, and, the, and the youth team and the academy are, are, are another base. Mm. Everybody had their breakfast together. Everybody trained together. And that's where you got the real sort of together, stronger mentality created by Mick and then Taff and then the likes of, Mr. Wally that you've talked about before. Everybody was sort of like singing from the hymn sheet and we was yeah. having success from top level right through to youth team. Things were things were looking good for the club. Yeah, and on top of that, I say it was it was a things were looking good on the pitch, but off the pitch it was a boom time. The promise of a new stadium coming the following season. Uh, it was it was all good, mate. It was all good, wasn't it? A good a good um team camaraderie and togetherness as well, you said. Yeah, like I say, I think, and you know, I think the beauty of the that time as well is, listen, I think Millwall maybe like Leeds, maybe just certain clubs up and down the country that are just different. You know, you, they just love a one of their own type. And I think where they was, whereas they were producing talent that were coming through um, and then those lads were getting minutes amongst a team that was winning, then the, the fans love a, a signing and and someone that's doing well, but they also always love the one of their own, one of them Millwall boys, them homegrown Bermondsey boys that were coming through the ranks. And and uh, and I think so. There was a bit of everything going on. The fans will always give you that little bit if there was a sadlier coming through, or they'll always give them boys a little bit more time than if they go and buy someone for half a million or hundred grand and then he, uh, he's art ain't in it or he don't run the extra mile. They mm -hmm. just, Tony Dolby, you know, he used to come on with 70, 80 minutes 
gone and just run his heart out and what he might have lacked at that particular time because he was young in in, a, in his touch or his finishing the fact that he chased every ball down he was one of the favourites straight away and and I think that maybe Millwall might have lost a little bit of that identity o- over the last few years you know mm. Well as I say you, you didn't have any such problem you took to it like a duck to water a uh, big squad at that point and a lot of forward players you uh, John Goodman John Byrne and um, John McGinley and all. <laughs> the yeah. Free Johns. The Free Johns. So what was um, was it competition for places? Was you told by McCarthy you're going to play with, you know, Goodman, which is obviously, which we found out later would work very well. Um, what was your what was your impressions coming in thinking there's a couple of um, couple of more seasoned pros there and John Goodman as well. It's going to be tough competition for places. Yeah. I mean, listen, when I come, I was under the understanding that McGinley was going to be moved out of the football club, you know, and that Mick wanted to, I think he was a Bruce Lee type of player, you know, and I think that the gaffer wanted to freshen up and get his own personnel in and he wanted to play a system that was total football, really, known to maybe a lot of times at Mill when it was maybe a little bit more back to front or get the ball up to the front man a lot quicker and, and then crowd and, and feed off second balls. I think Mick wanted to play two up front, a, a point man, which was your your Ian Bogey or a Malcolm Allen, which was a lovely sort of tidy player at the at the assist pass, two hard-working forwards, wingers and two midfielders, you know, that were hard-working but had qualities. Um, so we, 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 you know, and it, so a certain personnel had to fall into the way that he wanted to play. But it was always one or four, one or four of us. And it was a case of you had to work and you had to you had to fight for your position. I was just used to that chasing down because I'd come from Palace under right and bright. And although I wasn't close enough to get to to, to break that that pairing, um, I I thought well at Millwall there's nothing of that ilk in front of me that that scares me enough that I can't get in this team. And it was a mm. case of you know showing my attributes. I mean, Ian Evans used to have the forwards out an hour before, 45 minutes before the rest of the squad every morning, doing finishing left foot, right foot, one touch, two touch. And and everyone in the end, as, as, as much as you wanted to play, I've got to be honest, it's the only place really I've ever felt where if Johnny Good was playing up front with me, I felt like Tony or when it become Johnny Byrne or Dave Mitchell wanted us to do well. And, you know, if I had a, for a lack of form or got a knock and I come out of the team, you know, you wanted the boys that were that were playing to go and get the goals for you as a team because we just all wanted promotion and we all wanted the right things. I know there's always an element of, of ruthlessness, but, mm. that, you know, you want to be playing. But we just created this kind of real t- team spirit that, that, that was on the pitch, but... It was it was a ma- massive off it. I mean, the the drinking culture and the togetherness of that of them of, of what I what I witnessed from leaving Millwall and going to uh, so leaving Palace and going to Millwall that was more of a sort of a wake up call and a kind of like uh, a culture. I'm a part part of a first team, but to a man, we used to have like a Tuesday club where we'd come in on a Monday off the back of a game on a Saturday and a gaffer would address what went right, what went wrong, maybe look at the videos, go through stuff, go through certain scenarios on the, on the, on a Monday, on a Tuesday, he used to come in. We used to come in say, listen, you ain't going to see a ball. 
you boys are going to run your bollocks off. We used to do six or seven miles through the back of Eltham Sparrows Den, all the way back through the woods, work your bollocks off through a few sprints. And then to a man, get two or three pubs in Eltham, and then go up to Covent Garden in London, TGIs or uh, the Punch and Judy, and just get steaming, knowing that we had the Wednesday off, get steaming. Um, you know, all, all of, you know, Alex Ray, Pat Vandernell when he come, mm. Maguire, big personalities, even the gaffer at times. Did he get involved, Big Mick, yeah? Big Mick used to come up every now and again, lead the way, have a few beers. Then he might say, do you know what, boys, I'm going to leave you up here. But I remember there was one or two times when there was a bit of aggro in the boozer because you've got 20 or Eddie geezers in there and one or two would be like, well, and Mick would just say, listen, mate, keep your mouth, shush, shush. Because, listen, I'll be the straight, I'll be the one that'll be taking you out the front for a straightener. And that's the way he used to lead the way. You know, he used to lead deep on the front. Uh, and and he would know, at the say, and if anyone needed to be sorted out, he'd put himself up. So the younger ones coming through, and I still class myself as a younger one. But me and Andy Robertson, that mm. getting involved with the Malcolm Allens and the Alex Rays, and, and like I say, the Pat Vandernals and and well, Gavin Maguire's, and just getting into that boozy culture, and uh, and it just made us stronger. Yeah, well, I've got a list here. So uh, Vandenhow and. Um... Gavin Maguire come the second season. I did this when I did it with Mark Beard, and it's not the greatest interviewing technique ever, but there's, yeah. back in the day, there was no social media, there was no interviews. You didn't really know much about the players. You knew they played for me or where they was from, what position. But you didn't get an insight into what the sort of characters they were. So I've got, like, from, from that first season, uh, Keller, Cunningham, Cooper, uh, Rhino, Phil Barber, Andy May, Ian Bogey, Malcolm Allen. I just want to know what, what these people just were like in general. Did they all get involved? Yeah. What was he like, Ian Bogey? We used to call him Bogachenko because he used to play like, a, like I don't know whether it was a Russian or whether he used to play like a Brazilian, but he had so much ability. I mean, he was unfortunate because Malcolm Allen, at the time, they both used to play in that same position. So it was like one of two. You couldn't really have two of them in the team because although people may have seen him as a, as a luxury, at times, they were match winners at the same time. So one bit of brilliance and a great turn or an assist or they'd get a goal. But he'd come up from the north, I think Newcastle. And uh, But a lot of the team players, Tony McCarthy that got in, Etienne Vivier that got in, Casey Keller that got in, Kenny Cunningham, real quiet, unassuming, unassuming personalities. Yeah. But to a man, when the captain... Or Rhino went, right, boys, we're going to start at Elton, we're going to have a couple here, then we're going to be in the, in the punch and duty at four o'clock. You have to be in there. To a man, them boys were there. And, you know, some of them might have only had a couple of Cokes. One of them might have only had a couple of beers. Some of them might have had 20 beers. But they all they all were there, you know what I mean? They all, Paul Osgrove, even lads like that. They all He's on the list for Osgrove, yeah. <laughs> they all turned up. Everybody turned up because you didn't want to let, the other lads down. You wanted to show that he was part of it, but you mm. just thought I just thought it was the Millwall way. I just thought that this was something that 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 we'd we'd carried on from the likes of your Tony Cascarinos and you know your Ian Dawes. Uh, your, your Ian Dawes was there, and or your Teddies or you know people before us, and and that was the way it was. And the likes of me and Andy. Uh, Andy Roberts and Tony Dolby, we just got sucked into 
to getting involved with the older pros, the lads that were 28, 29, 30, that we respected and we thought we'd be respected even more if we just joined into their culture. And in the end, we were the ones that were going every week. We loved it. It was just part of it. Tuesday club, have the Wednesday off, and then the gaffer would say, right, few sprints, graft Thursday, and you was back on it then. You know, you knew where mm. you was, and, and it was something that was just got us through the season. Talking about Bogachenko, as you just yeah. called him, uh, that, a, a video that I put up on social media, it's a game we won 2-0 against Leicester. You scored a first, you turned on a good volley, and then the second one you put in yeah. John Goodman to score the header. John Goodman jumps up on the thing. Yeah, Bogey, Bogey whips his kicks down, doesn't he? And he was fuming John Goodman. Yeah. Was that sort of a regular... Was, it, was he a bit of a pranker, was he, Ian Bogey? Yeah, I, th I think he was a bit of a prank. Yeah, he, used to, he was a bit of a pranker. You had him, you had... Um... The goalie, car. He was like a number two, Casey Keller's number two. He was from Middlesbrough, that sort of way. Uh, I can't think of his name at the minute. Uh, it'll come to me in a second. But he was a bit of a joker. He, you know. But that was, a, I think, that was just uh, again just uh, showing the togetherness of the team. Really, that you know, we were serious. We used to, we used to, we used to drink hard, but we would play hard. And and we were we was as one. And like I say, whether or not you was in the team, out the team, you come together regardless of what we was. You know, whether the gaffer would do a charity night down at Crayford Dogs, or we would we would we would do we would do something in the community. To a man, everybody would turn up. There was no mobile phones then. You know, mm. you used to take a liberty because you was able to take a liberty because there was no one that would say, oh, I've seen him out on a Wednesday night or I've seen him out in Zens in Dartford on a Thursday night because, you know, sitting in the jacuzzi getting steaming because no one had any evidence. So you used to take that liberty. And I think, you know, that's probably why the camaraderie, that sort of, uh, uh, um, that sort of part of the game has, 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 has become instinct which is good, really, for the modern-day players. But at the same time, it takes away the, 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 the making of characters because, mm. you know, you would come in and you'd tell the stories and, you know, and you'd be, you know, before... The, be, the best time would be you'd get in a training ground at half nine, training would be at half ten, and for that hour, you'd just sit in your kegs or your pants, you'd have a cup of coffee, and you'd be in the dressing room and the lads would just be sharing stories of, like, what happened the night before or... How did you get home last night? Or Gary, Gavin Maguire would say, oh, I got nicked. I lost my licence coming back from Punch and Judy on Blackfriars Bridge trying to get back to Guildford or whatever. And everyone, uh, there were so many stories that were being shared. That was your hour, really. Before then, you went over that white line. The gaffer, the gaffer would, would make sure you was tuned in and, 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 you, and you knew you was, you, 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 you was prepared to go to war, whether it be game day or you would have to train as if he was playing. He didn't accept anybody being sloppy or taking any of the antics that were being created, you know, from previous evenings onto the training pitch. The minute that you went out, you know, onto the, onto the green bays, that mm -hmm. was that, So that first season, you're talking about good players and, and a lot of them. But Andy May, Ian Bogey and Malcolm Allen in that midfield for, for your options. What was he like, Andy May as a character? Andy May, he had a dry sense of humour. He wouldn't be one you would be, you know, having to drag out of nightclubs at one, two in the morning or, you know, you, you know you could trust him. But I've got to say, probably one of the best, 
best central midfielders I've ever played with in terms of a, of a player. If you put him into a computer, a central midfielder into, into a computer, you, you probably wouldn't come out with Andy May if you wanted to create the most... Um, yeah, he didn't look like a footballer, did he? Oh, you sort of barrel-shaped. He sort of looked like he was carrying a stone overweight at times. A little yeah, Mulby-esque, wasn't he? A little bit Mulby-esque, but in terms of picking a pass out, slowing a game down, having... Uh, all, all of the passes, all of the all, all, all the clubs in the bag, um, short pass, long pass, knowing when to stretch, knowing when to stick it in behind, knowing to when to alleviate pressure. I think for all of the mavericks that we had in the team, um, and 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 teams and players that could win you games, albeit an Alex Ray or a Johnny Goodman or an Etienne Vivier or somebody like. And Malcolm Allen, I'll probably look back over that two years and probably say that Ted, we used to call him Ted. Right. Why's that? I don't know. <laughs> I, I, I used to call him Ted in the end, but I don't know why, why his nickname was Ted. Maybe one of the other lads would be able to tell you. But Ted was probably Mick McCarthy's first name on the team sheet. Really? Yeah, top draw player. What about Malcolm Allen? He, he was a li- he was lively, Malcolm Allen, because obviously he's, he's had obviously well documented problems. Yeah, Mally was a loon, you know what I mean? Like I say, he started the culture; he'd be right up the front. But his ability and his um, his ability that he had um, and very well thought of at Millwall. He is still now. People always say what a player he was, you know. Great ability, two feet. Um, he used to like Andy Roberts used to call him Chip Pan Face because he had, like he had a funny old. Yeah, he had a funny, funny grid. But a lovely fella, unbelievable player. Both feet used to get in the hole, be comfortable taking it on his back foot. Uh, and probably, I'd say, one of the most respected players at Mill at that time. Um, match winner. Uh, loved the booze. But I've got to say, when again, when he put his training kit on and we went out to training where there might have been one or two fuck-about merchants or people that tried to have a little cheat-up every now and again. He was always spot-on. He was the model pro, trained like he played. Um, so, you you know, you, you you accepted him for what he what he was or the vices that he may have had having a few beers or whatnot because you knew mm. that he'd done it right, he trained right, and he was a fantastic player. I wouldn't have a bad word said about him and went on and played for his country as well and, mm. and Newcastle. So a very, very gifted player. You said, well, it's obviously a formula that worked because as you said to me off camera, the, the term you used, which I loved, we, you, we was bashing teams up for fun and we scored some serious goals that first season, didn't we? Serious goals. Yeah, um, I mean, I mean, the first season, I think there was a week, a week, when I just don't know what the gaffer, wanted. I don't know what he'd done or what he, it was just like it was on autopilot. I think we, on the Sunday we beat, we'd beaten uh, Brentford 6-1. Uh, a couple that day, I nicked one off Johnny Goodman. I still to this day don't know if it had the pace to go over the line, but I I just made sure. Yeah. Best yeah. please, but he nicked two himself. So we, you know, we was happy. And then we played Peterborough that were making a bit of a charge at the time on the Tuesday night, and that was 5-1. And then Watford come down there with their Andy S. and, Andy S and Tyler and the David Oldsworth 
and they had uh, Paul Furlan up front, and they come to the den giving it the big, and they got smashed up 5-1, 5-2. So I think we scored like 17 goals, conceded four over a week, and things were just rolling then. We then beat West Ham at home 1-0 on the Sunday, and we were just on autopilot, and things were going so well. We was in the top three behind Newcastle, West Ham, and we looked to dead cert to get to the playoffs. Um, and we just folded up the last 10 games. I think if you look back, we might have won one game or we might have took five points out of a possible 30, and we ended up coming seventh, and, and Leicester got in sixth place, and uh, it was a travesty, really. I remember us that season going away, just completely flabbergasted how we, how we didn't get in the top six because it was we were playing so much attractive football when the team was starting to evolve, and it was a mix of... Your Colin Coopers and your Rhino and your, your experienced lads, 25, 26 and beyond, with a real crop of emerging talent, mm-hmm. the likes of Kenny Cunningham and, 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 and people like Ben Thatcher. Andy Roberts at the time was probably 18, 19 years old, Robbo, playing centre-back for Millwall. I mean, if, if you've got any 18, 19-year-olds now doing what he was doing back then, uh, you, you're going for 10, 15 million pounds. You know, he was very composed on the ball as well, wasn't he? He wanted to play out, didn't he, as well? He want to play, and everybody looked at him and thought he, like, you know, he always he was a bit heavy, you know, then. I mean, he's heavy now, but, you know, he just had a, 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 a head on him uh, beyond his years. But he just used, stepped up into the first team. He was accepted by the older pros. And he, we just got in the team. And like I say, then you had the likes of Jeff Pitcher and Mark Kennedy. And there was such, uh, through, through, through uh, Wally, Tom Wally, he instilled such a good youth team uh, and they were challenging us. So we knew we had to be on our toes. I'm thinking to myself, you know, we got to be on the top here. Otherwise, Mark Kennedy or Ben uh, Neville Gordon that were coming through are going to take our shirts. So you were just kept on your toes. And then we uh, went pre-season to Ireland. And then the second, uh, and we went to the den. I mean, I broke, I turned my ankle over in pre-season. So I didn't, I missed the first part and missed the opening of the new den when John Kerr, Kerr scored. We mm. signed a couple of Americans, uh, John Kerr and Murray. Murray Wallace, yeah, yeah. Uh, no, no, Murray Wallace. He's oh, there. Sorry, Bruce Murray. Murray, yeah, Bruce Murray. Murray Wallace. So they come from America to bolster the the centre forward to make it even harder. But um, but yeah, I mean uh, the second year at the new den was uh, was phenomenal. But that last game at the old den, Bristol Rovers at home, was a very very an emotional time. Even though I'd only been at the club from from the October to the May. Yeah, uh, I, I, you just got caught up in all the emotions of of the years gone by and the historical moments and everything Millwall stood for. Uh, the the the, the anyway, any there wasn't a dry tear in the house from players, from 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 people behind the scenes, from the kit man to the to, to the secretaries, into the stadium. Then from young lads that were now our age and your age to granddads that were at the time sixty and seventy years old. I mean, it was a real memorable moment to be to be part of mm. you said we was as we said we was absolutely flying at one point and then we just fell away do you think maybe you know the anticipation of the new stadium coming may have distracted the players slightly or it doesn't sound like something really could happen but maybe what do you think went wrong for well, it to sort of just just die off 
I think we looked and we might have panicked a little bit. There was nobody there. Or I don't think there was anybody in that team at the time. Quite a young squad. I don't think anybody had sampled any type of that sort of success before trying to get to what is now the Premier League. Because that was the Premier League's first season, 92-93 would have been the first yeah. year of the Premier League as well, wouldn't it? Yeah. So I think Mick tampered a little bit. I think he went and got Tommy Gaynor. I think he went and got Wallace from Man United on loan. Tommy Gaynor come in the club. I think Lee Luscombe a couple of people from Southampton. And we started to, to juggle about a little bit, maybe change the personnel, maybe come away a little bit from what we had bought, bought us a success, just out of pure desperation, just trying to change things to try and get that sort of willing mentality back. And we just, mm. we just for whatever reason... We just we just couldn't we just we just couldn't get back on the winning trail and we and we come seventh which was which if you was to even look at that video back now to to where we was in January probably third 10, 12, 14 points clear of the seventh team you'd have thought it's it's impossible you know yet if you could have, you know, fast forward on it for the last fifteen games you know and it, and the surprise would be are we actually going to get into the top two there's no I would have thought probably 95% people would have said there's no way we could have dropped out the top six we was a certain for that but we did you know and then it was a case of just trying to learn from that and trying to rebuild first year at the new stadium and then prepare ourselves for another mount another challenge in the second season which which we did and, and obviously got got to the playoffs yeah well the second season um you didn't score as many goals personally the second season as you did the first. Um, but the team, obviously, sometimes if a team's going to move to a new stadium, they can struggle to find their feet for the first couple of years. But as you say, again, we didn't. We finished third. Um, John Goodman, we ain't spoke about him too much. You played up front with him the first season and the second. Was it the whole second season? He went Eventually, him and Cunningham left, didn't they? Yeah, and they, they went to oh, Wimbledon as, together as a joint deal. Yeah, they left after me. So we, we, we played that season again right. together. Uh, but I, like I say, in the pre-season, so I, we'd gone away after year one, new year at the Den. I'd done my ankle in pre-season just before we was going to Ireland. So I missed about the first three months of the second season. And then it took me a bit of time to kind of get back up and running again. By this time, the boys are, are, are doing well. And Johnny Good was there, but obviously, like I say, the American boys. Um, well, yes, yeah, so, so I'll just, just tell you, the second season, you said you had a good uh, boozing culture the first season. The second season, the additions to the squad were Pat Van der Nau, Etienne Vivier, Dave Mitchell, John Kerr, and uh, the return of Terry Odock as well. Well, that was unbelievable. We, I think Terry come back, I don't know if it was the second season or whether he come back at the latter stages of season number one. I no, he, came back, he came back at, um, the, the, when he was in the New Den, I think, because I think on his home debut, we got sent off, didn't he, against Leicester? That's right. So, right, yeah. I think, that, so this is this is the second season. 93, 94, yeah, first season at the New Den. This, this, this particular time, we're mathematically can still get... Pro- if you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. 
With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey there, it's Michelle Norris. I'm host of a podcast called Your Mama's Kitchen. When I travel, I'm usually looking for a way to find a taste of home when I'm not at home. And one of the things I love to do when I am at home is entertain. And Airbnb allows me to do that. When I was in California recently, I rented a house that had a great kitchen. And when we were sitting around the table, we're all thinking, we're in someone else's house. Someone could be in all of our homes as well. If you have a home, but you're not always at home, you have an Airbnb. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at airbnb.com slash host. Promoted to, to, to get into the top two. Mm. I, know, I know we got in the playoffs. We need to beat Leicester. And it's Terry Erlock's homecoming. <coughs> But we need to beat Leicester to give us a chance still to go for automatic promotion. So there's a lot on the line. I remember it was on a Sunday and it was live on telly and the place was amped because one, we was flying, so we was getting packed houses. But obviously it was a return of Terry. And I remember after the first minute or the first couple of minutes, he gets sent off. And everyone, I'm thinking to myself, oh, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking we're now we're down to 10. We're going to be even harder to go and get three points and win this now. So while I think there was a bit of devastation around the lads, mm. I remember him as he got sent off, he got the biggest roar of the day for getting sent off. And I, caught, I thought, fuck me, this shows you the mentality here down at the den. You know, the, the gods come back and he's got the biggest applause of the afternoon for getting a red. And yet he's probably ruined our chances of getting automatic promotion. So it was a bittersweet day as well. We end up think, holding on for a nil-nil. And I think that stopped us that day. Forgetting we knew he was in the playoffs at that point. Mm. But he was, was a eh? He was a character, Big T, Terry. Go on. No, I just, I mean, I, I used to love him. Do you know what I mean? I used to take him in. He, he, I, don't think, I, think, I don't think he'd, he'd even lost his licence or he... he, he, he um, he, in fact, he never passed his test. One of the two probably lost his license. So I used to drop him at the time he was living in Streatham and I was, you know, I used to drop him home after training and that. And he, 
you know, he used to tell me about the stories and what Millwall meant to him and the way that, you know, he'd gone to Southampton and Rangers and now he had come back. But I'd seen him in in Portugal about a year ago. I'm in Portugal and I'm sunbathing and I see this geezer come with his throwing his hair back like the undertaker. And I thought, that's Terry. I said to my missus, that's Terry Earlham. So anyway, I went over there. I went, all right, Terry's Jamie. He went, all right, son. And then within a couple of minutes, we was having a beer. And I said, you, what are you doing with yourself? You doing? He said, oh, I'll go up to Glasgow Rangers and I'll do a little bit. He said, and I was doing a little bit at Millwall, but they've relieved me of my duties. He said, I don't work there anymore. He said, uh, I said, well, why is that? Then he went, oh, the powers that be or the new owners have knocked it on the head. Like, you know, I used to go there on a, on a, on a Saturday I used to start off at box number one, off at the, the other side of the dugout, start at box number one, and they'd be all, tell him a few stories. All right, Terry, what you having, what you having? He said, by the time I got to bet box 30, a quarter to three, I was 30 Stellas in. So obviously, the, the stories were start become a lot more effing and blinding. And he said, and word got back. So he said, they've... He said, they've, they've, they've knocked it on the head. They've, they've stopped me being an ambassador anymore. He yeah. said, but the truth be told, he said, that's what the people at Millwall want. Yeah, of course they do. Yeah. Live for. That's what they want. They encourage me. He said, so if people are going to want it to be that type of club, he said, you know what? He said, I have to take it on the chin. He said, but it'd be sad that I won't be going back there in that capacity. So he was pretty broke up about the fact that he'd lost his, he'd lost his ambassador role down there purely because he was having a drink with punters. But mm. that's what the punters, the first thing you see Terry Earlock, the first thing you're going to say to him is, what are you gonna? What are you having? Because yeah, to those to those pun, uh, punters over the years, you know. Yeah, so, shame, big shame. Big Terry, Pat Van now. We've heard some blinding stories on him from Mark Beard already, like, like off key stories, out of hand. Yeah, 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 yeah. So you had Pat, Gavin Maguire, and Terry Erlock. <laughs> we might not have got promoted, but if we'd have had to go into a UFC bout with them three. <laughs> We would have bashed up anyone in the championship by a country mile, but they were free loons. What was he like, Van der Now? You say he was a um, good mate of yours at the club, wasn't he? Yeah, he'd come, he'd come, and I think he had some personal issues going on at the time with his with his missus and that, and um, and he had come with a big reputation from Everton, and he just wanted to play football. I don't think at that particular time it was anything do with finances about him he just wanted to play football get himself back on track and maybe come and just maybe chill out and maybe not get involved in the madness of the circus that was with his life yeah. when he came to the wrong club then because the minute he come to Millwall the circus begun and I remember him and you know we, we used to go out into Beckenham and we used to go and I'd take him into Croydon and he was a big face you know what I mean in, in the world of football and I remember one night being in the Blue Orchid in Croydon and it was about half past 12 at night and we had played Notts County away or someone like that. And I'd got back into Worcester Park, took my tracksuit off, jeans on. And I would think I was in there with Andy Roberts and a few of my mates because that's where I was living in Croydon. And next minute, Bouncer comes up to me about half past 12, quarter to one. He said to me, there's someone at the door, Pat Vandenau's at the door wanting you. So club shuts at three normal, normally. So I went to the front with the security and he went, uh, I went, Pat, I said, what are you going get me in? I went, I said, it's 12 o'clock, no more admissions. He went, fuck off. He went, get me in. 
on, set him, and he had his Millwall, still had his Millwall tracksuit on and a pair of Adidas gazelles. Right. 20 minutes later, he was in the set, he was in the middle bar at the Blue Kid nightclub in Croydon and he was having a few. He got in and he was in his tracksuit, didn't give a monkeys, just turned up out the blue. God knows how he found out I was there, but he was one that he would track you down. He just wanted some reassurance in life. He just loved being around you. He just wanted that security. Uh, and I think that's why people like Mark uh, Mark Beard, yeah. Andy Roberts, that maybe when Pat was 31, 32, 33, these boys would have been 16, 17, 18. But if you wanted to be a beer partner of these or you wanted to go out with him on an all day, it didn't matter what age he was. He just took you under his wing and he'd go out and he'd tell you his last life stories and you just, you felt for the man, you know what I mean? But as mm. a player, he was like silk. But I remember one time we was training and he wanted to play a certain way at the back and Mick didn't agree with it. And... And the next minute, they're toe-to-toe, -to -toe, you know what I mean? They're in each other's face. And Pat's, Pat's saying, I'm going to do this and do this. And Mick's saying, well, go on. And you have the first first, 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 first punch because that's the only one you're going to be getting because I'll, I'll knock you spark out. And all the lads are going, wow, it was too big. And he went to, uh, to Pat, listen, get yourself in the training ground. And, and I think Pat went in and I don't think we ever see him again. I think that might have been the time that, you know, and that started on the pitch. And they, were, they had a they had a bit of two in them throwing, and um, and like I say, they weren't both going to back down two big 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 generals, and they went toe to toe in each other's face, and you know they would have had a straight and no danger. Um, but a lot of tackles must have been flying in in training. If it's fifty fifty, you've got Terry Olock running from one side, Pat Van Der running from the other, Mick yeah. McCarthy um, running from the other, and and um, it was the other um, Maguire who's McGuire. coming out with a ball there. And you had Rhino in there as well, you know what I mean? <laughs> Rhino was a loon. I mean, he's a lovely guy, but, he, you know, he, his name his name, his name, name stands before him, you know, in terms of he's one man that if you want to be in the trenches or one man you want to go to work with, you're going with Rhino because, you know, what, you know, what people said he might have lacked in terms, of, in ter terms of, of, of talent when you've got all of these guys coming down and from Newcastle or lads being signed from... Crystal Palace or bigger clubs and you got Rhino, you know, uh, that people might might have said might have lacked a little bit of gracefulness. But what he give you in terms of, you know, his, his desire, um, the, his ruthlessness on the pitch, the way he led the team, application on a daily basis to get the best out of everything that he could to become a player. They were the type mm. of people that you was dealing with. The younger lads coming through could not fail to become a success or could not fail to be a player because you was indented by those type of lads um, and, and older pros that just just that you could learn from on a daily basis, good and bad. And you just needed to mm. be that sponge that could just pick up little bits from each and every, and every individual in order for all of those boys like the Cunninghams and the Fatchers and the Goodmans and the Andy Roberts and the Casey Kellers that went on and played in the Premier League. And a lot to do with it was those older pros that were a lot of that were unsung heroes. Yeah, it was it was a random mix in the 90s of, of, of Millwall players. You had a, you, say, you just mentioned a lot of good players there. Then you had a lot of seasoned pros. And then you just had some really random players that would never play anywhere else. So just... And that, and that fascinates me. I don't know why, but like I say, Ian Vivere, Dave Mitchell, Bruce Murray, John Kerr. Added, added maybe the more, you know, out of the circle, not from this sort of culture. How did they 
cope with the day-to-day goings on of like Mick McCarthy and Pat Vanderdale going nose to nose. Yeah, like I say, you got, and I think it's a case of you no, know, no different to me and Phil Barber in terms of coming from from Millwall, or if they were to sign a player that was played at West Ham, you had to sink or swim. Those boys had to do the same. Etienne Vivier come from a nice, relaxed environment in Holland. Very chilled out guy. Hair like Nat King Cole. Graceful, graceful footballer, but he could run all day. He was like a gazelle. But he had to buy into the culture that was before him. And for him to be accepted into the group and for his talents to be able to, to develop and flourish... He needed to buy into the Millwall way, and he did. And if you didn't, and and a few players come in and didn't want to buy into it or found it difficult, they were shipped out. You didn't last five minutes. It was a mm. ruthless environment. Yeah, players come and go a lot more back then as well, didn't they? Um, another random player that I'm going to ask you about, because I think there's a little bit of a story behind this. You might not know it. Warren Patmore, right? Mm. Was was he actually a player? Was he like did he play golf for the players and they, he got a game once? Was, was that that was like a rumor? I'm sure. Yeah, I don't, I don't, I don't think he ever played in it. He must have just come down there, won a raffle. I think he might have run a raffle or something to be a player for the day. Or he's an imposter because he, I, I don't, I can't recall that he was any good. So Patmore showed a few skills down at the training ground, but I don't think he got on the first team coach much. Yeah, I think he only played one game. But the, the, the sheer yeah. amount of players we had as well was just... There was yeah. a lot of players there. Wasn't it? So what, what was John Kerr, Bruce Murray and Dave Mitchell? What was they like? Oh, they were good characters. Well, I say, the Americans, they, they, they come there and they, and they may have been teetotal. Do you know what I mean? John Kerr may have been teetotal when he arrived at Millwall. But the minute you walked into that training ground, you, you had to get used to drinking a minimum, I'd say, of like... <coughs> 40 units a week in order to be accepted by your by your fellow pros or you were seen as a bit of an outsider that didn't want to mix and like I say on the training pitch it was proper you know Mick used to join in all the five sides me and him used to have a run in uh, a side bet every Friday we used to have either a north versus south or young versus old so he, uh, Mick would be with the north and a young versus old, he would be on with the old. So I used to play against him every Friday. And we used to have like a tenner on the Friday. And at the end of the month, we used to have to weigh on. I think the two 18 months I was there, I brought his daughter or son a bike, uh, an Atari. Uh, I mean, the amount of dough he got off me. Because he was used to play small-sided games and you couldn't get away from him. So he used to make it small, condensed, so you couldn't, me and Goody couldn't run their way along the channels to get away from Mick. So he just used to hold, him, hold you in there and he used to beat us on a regular basis. But they were competitive, match pace games played on a Friday that got you amped up and ready for the Saturday. Yeah, so one, and again, it worked, mate. We went, we went one better. Um, we finished third in the league. Crystal Palace won the league. Forest came second. We came third, and Derby finished sixth. Who we ended up having to face in the playoffs. Yeah, no, kill, kill, kills me still. Uh, kills me still, really. I mean, I think it was the first year, or only the second year, that we were all saying if we come third, we already we get promoted to the Premier League. They changed. They made the playoffs only maybe the year prior, because before that it was top three promoted. 
So mm. we're thinking this is an injustice. Do you know what I mean? We don't want the playoff system because, you know, we we we, we deserve to come third. We, we would have, years gone by, that would have been enough. And to get beat first time of asking in the semi-finals of the, of the, of the leg, um, Took some taking. I took it. Took its toll. I think not just on the players that played, but on the whole football club. And I think over that year, the next year, that's mm. when everybody sort of parted company and and that group mm. broken up. It was a case of that group either sticks together, investment comes in to go again to go and get promotion, or we're gonna get funds by breaking the team up and taking two million here, two million there, million quid here, 500 here, and 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 just use that two-year period of that team to turn over new players but 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 get some investment out of the personnel. And I think that's the way the club went. Yeah, it was it was such a vital time for the club, wasn't it? To to get first season in the new stadium, chance to get into the Premier League at the first time of asking in the new stadium. Um, as I say, we, we had Derby. They finished six. I think we beat them up there in the league as well. Um, I can't actually even remember, if I'm honest, the score at the baseball ground. I just knew it was pretty much job done and a massive tour. What, what was was it like? Two, three nil at the baseball ground. We got beat. We the year before, we went one day. They had the the Robert Maxwell money, so they had like Pembridge and Tommy That's Johnson, right. and they. They were buying everyone, everyone outside the Premier League, to, to in all in order to 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 go to the Premier League. Um, and the first year we went one nil down Pembridge, and then I scored, and then Alex Ray scored an unbelievable outside volley into the to the corner. We won two one. We always had a bit of a running. I mean, they had uh, Craig Short at the back, uh, Paul Williams. So there was always a bit of grief between me and Johnny Good and their back four anyway. And then we drew them in the playoffs. In the first leg, and I didn't play, we lost 2-0. And he changed it up for the second leg. Marco Gabardini put us 1-0, put them 1-0 up early, 3-0 down. And of course, then the, uh, the the pitch invasions and his horses and we're sitting in the dressing room and we get pulled off and it happened to be my final game for Mill. So it was a... Uh, Horrible way to uh, to leave the football club. What was Mick saying when you're in that dressing room, three 0 down on aggregate, an absolute chaos outside the, on the pitch? What was he? Was he trying to raise your spirits? Was he just saying he's done now? Let's just sort of get through it and see it out. Yeah, we we knew we knew going into the second leg how important the first goal was going to be. So we knew at home with our record at home, if we got the first goal and we could go two one we would have the emphasis and they would crumble. So we knew everything was on the first goal and the fact that he went and got it, made it 3-0, just killed us and knocked the stuffing out of everybody, not just for the players, but probably for the fans. And I just think that there was just an air of frustration around the ground, the same way that it was for the players, that we had, through 40-odd games, come third, probably deserved to be promoted. And again, it was another missed opportunity for Millwall and the football club to get back or to get to the Premier League, which everybody craved for. We had a team of young talent that was ready for the Premier League, probably would have kept us all together. And everybody knew probably that with the result losing that game, it was going to be a bit of a dismantling of the of the team and, and, and the football club. And then obviously the riots started and, and then... Um, me going off on holiday and and, and all the lads 
Um, and then I got a call um, from Reg Burr saying that the club had accepted 500,000 for me and Neil Emblem, that the William Younger or Captain Morgan at the time mm. had uh, pulled out of the sponsorships because of the negativity of the riots and that, and they weren't going to re-sponsor. So the club had to find a million pounds because they were still having to pay for the stadium and pay money back. People had to leave. So it, uh, me and Neil that were left, I'm still only young, 22, 23, I'd signed a new contract. Neil Emblem. Yep. Neil Emblem, he went to Wolves. I went to Watford. And then very quickly, um, Andy Roberts, Kenny Cunningham, Thatcher went to Wimbledon. Um, Casey Keller went to Tottenham. I think Colin Cooper might have gone to Middlesbrough. Alex Ray went to some Sunderland or Rangers. Mm-hmm. And the whole team just that we, we built up got 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 um got derails dismantled. Yeah, it's a strange one because we spoke to the two thousand two thousand and one. A lot of the players from that, and it was the ITV Digital that knocked the stuffing out of the team, and that to start selling. In a different instance, um, for different circumstances, this this is happening. What you're saying is obviously new stadium. We've gone to a new stadium. Big expectations come close. We've got a global sponsor in Captain Morgan, and then because of the chaos that night, obviously on the pitch, the plug gets pulled. Captain Morgan pull out, and obviously the, the club then have got no money, and, yeah. and players need to be sold. So. Yeah. Obviously, anyone of any value at that point, uh, you say Watford come in for you. So you didn't want to, you didn't want to leave me a wall. I'd signed a free man in the January. Like I, Man City come in for me at the time for seven hundred and fifty grand, and the gaffer pulled me in his office because I'd only signed an original two year, and he said to me, "Look, Man City's come in for you. We can't be seen. We're third in the league. We're going for promotion. We can't be seen to be selling you." Um, and you know what, what we'll do? We'll give you a three-year deal to show you some security and give you know show you a little bit of love back. And I was more than more than happy with that. I thought I'm going to get to the Premier League anyway. We're, we're going one way. Mm. And then, like I say, I got the phone call. So when you get the phone call and you're 21, 22, you've got that air of disappointment about you. And I, I, I mean, I must have letters like that from Mill supporters where. They were going, you Judas, you left the club, this, 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 this. I never had a chance to put the record straight. Yeah, that's before Twitter, obviously. Yeah, never had a Twitter thing. Because because I thought, well, Mick's going to be behind it. But in hindsight, and I'll tell you a story in a minute, I thought Mick's going to be behind it. Reg would have spoke to Mick and he said, well, what about Jamie? Yeah, he can go. I'm thinking, well, if you don't want me, I want to leave. I don't want to stay if I ain't if I ain't respected or or the club don't want me. So I thought I was you know, doing the right thing, me and Neil, to get the club the money. The club's more important than us. You want us to go on our way. We're going to get a second opportunity to go and play at Watford. Um, I just bashed them up 5-2 and scored two a few weeks before. They weren't even that good. We were better than them. Um, I thought, you know, I've got to go there. Damon Portsmouth come in. And then I'll get a phone call from Mick two days later. He said, Jamie, where are you? I said, Gaffer, I'm at Vicarage Road. He said, I've heard you've gone to Millwall. He said, I'm in, I'm in, I'm in Los Angeles or I'm in, I'm in America with the, with the 1994 World Cup team. What the fuck's going on? I said, Gaffer, I've been sold. He went, who sanctioned it? I said, Reg. I said, you must have known about it. He went, no. He went, it's a fucking disgrace. And he put the phone down on me. Fuck. So, right. I ripped Mick McCarthy a letter 
1994, August 1994. I let the dust settle. I waited till the season evolved. 9th of August 1994. Dear Mick, just want to say, I wanted to just say uh, how sad I am about the way that it ended, the way that I left Millwall, how you've made me a better person over two years, how you've made me a better player over two years. I hope you go and get promotion and you get the credit for the fantastic football that you played for the football club. Um, love to Fiona and the family. And uh, by the way, I'm sure I'm going to save 100 quid a month anyway now because you used to take that off me at five sides. U-F-N-C-U-N-T. Lots of love. Jamie Morley. Send it to him. Never had a reply. Ever. Never spoke to him. Ever. Two years ago, my phone goes. Hello? Unknown number. Hello? Jamie, it's the gaffer. Mick? Fucking hell, how are you? Uh, yeah, I'm good, son. Yeah, I'm good. I am just want to ring up and say, we've both done all right, haven't we? We've both done all right. I went, yeah, he went, but I've, I've, uh, me and Fiona were clearing the garage out this morning and I've come through a memory box and in that memory box, I found a letter that you sent me in 9th of August, 1994. Me and Fiona have just read it. We're laughing ourselves, we're, 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 we're laughing ourselves to death. And I just made me want to ring you up, he said, and just obviously apologise and whatnot. He said, you fancy a coffee in Chiselhurst? So I said, yeah, of course. When he met him in Cote or Cote in Chiselhurst. Yeah, I know. Yeah. And now I signed, I signed there and then we left that day. And now I signed him as a client and I represent him. And, and as, a, as an agent, I represent him now. And, and he's one of my clients. So that's if that ain't a full story, <laughs> so over, over 25 years, I don't know what is. That's madness. Well, to write that letter, you must have you must have had a lot of you speak highly of him. You must have had a lot of respect for him and felt that he really helped your development as a player. And he gave you the chance really in proper first team football, didn't he? Yeah, he was unbelievable. I say, like I say, he was honest and he was everything. And honest to it enough, where I thought, well, why is he letting me go? Why does he? Why is he accepted a bid? Why is he not? Why is he not telling the man, the the, the, the chairman? I don't, I don't. I don't want him to go. I'd, I'd rather sell, you know, Bruce Murray back to. I don't know. We'll let go. You wouldn't got a do- You wouldn't got a dollar for that guy. Yeah. Why don't I sell someone else? Like why me? And I was like, you know what you like is a thing. I blame every and uh, and he, and he, he was he just wasn't they just he, he just wasn't notified and it was done over his head. And when I went, he rung me up and and that was it. We we sort of had words and we fell out. I wrote him a letter to say sorry because although I went on to Watford and it looked at it looked at the time. A kind of next stage, if you like. I never really replicated that form. I never really regained that form throughout the rest of my career, really. But I never really found that kind of home, that place that I called home, where I wanted to get in my car every day and go into that training ground at Eltham. You know, I wanted to, I went from, from, from the top boys, like I said, you know, from, from, from Rhino to Ken, Ken the kit man. To Melv, the physio. Right. Ken, Barry, Ken Barry, the kit man. They look like that, didn't he? Yeah, Ken Barry and his staff, you know what I mean? And I mean, like, the staff, the staff of the dog used to just be running around and all that, do you know what I mean? We, in your training ground, there's no health and safety. <laughs> we used to, like, have a little canteen and we used to go training and we used to say to the woman or fella behind the jump before training, 
save me that minced beef and onion pie or make sure that you don't sell that sausage roll. There weren't no like today, today's all milkshakes or salads here and everything so like protein and this. There was none of that. It was, I mean, mince and, mince and, eating, mince and onion pie or sausage roll or two bacon rolls. Do you know what I mean? It was a, when the gaffer used to say, that's it, that's it training over. There used to be a quicker run to back to training ground to the pavilion to go and get your bit of dinner. But it was <laughs> crap we was eating, but that's just the, that's what made us tick. And like I said, at the same time, you had the underbelly and the undercurrent of the Ben Thatchers and the Paul Irvins and the Steve Harris's and the next generation coming through that had so much banter and you just knew that they were typical Bermondsey boys, Kent boys, that, you know, they were up for a trick. They were up for a, you know, they'd cut your clothes up. They, they'd fuck about with you. And there was no, well, we're first team pros, you know, we're above, you know, we're above your station or what. There was none of that. It was real one real family unit from under 16s right up to the likes of Rhino. And, and I think that that was where everybody was. I never replicated that before. Again, when I went to other clubs, like I say, you was away from the youth team. You couldn't inter interact with those lads. They're the next generation, do you know what I mean? They need to learn and pick a little bit out of Morley's game or pick a little bit out of Goodman or say, do you know what, there's certain ways, the way that Jamie trains that, I don't want to, I don't want no part of that, but I'll take a little. And and and, and the, the, the problem that you got with today is I think everybody's separated and there's just no young talent coming through. I mean... Since since Aiden Aiden was the boy that said the O'Brien Aiden O'Brien, where's the next generation coming through at a club like Mill? And we and we're in South London, probably the biggest hotbed of talent. Where the likes of Jaden Sancho and Joe Gomez and John Joe Shelby and all these young players, Wilfred Zaha, Jonathan Williams, Nathaniel Klein. They're all coming through South London, where Millwall is at the heart of, and uh, and yet we ain't producing no talent at Millwall. I just don't understand it. And what I respect Mill Mick McCarthy for was, yes, he had his older pros. Yes, he had the Maguires. Yes, he had the Rhinos. Yes, he had people like Pat Vandernau. But he also developed the likes of your Ben Thatchers, your Mark Kennedys, all of that generation that come through because he had the bollocks to put them in. And there mm. might have been times when, you know, they put them in and they let you down or they put you in and or they weren't quite ready. But ultimately, when the shit hit the fan, the cells, the cells of those developed them, the players that had that first team experience probably kept Millwall afloat as a football club. Mm. Well, you, you touched on it a minute ago and some people might be thinking, what's he on about there about he manages Mick McCarthy? So for those who don't know, your, uh, your career after football just snowballed, mate. It's even more successful than you was on the pitch. You are now off it. So do you want to tell us a bit about what you're doing now? Yeah, so I've got a company called New Era Global Sports that I set up on retirement because um, it was a new era for me. I was a player and then I wanted to go into managing players, really, and um, and being their agent. Um, and being a, a kid from Wandsworth, myself, uh, I, I wasn't born with a silver spoon in my mouth. I never had a family that had, had any type of money. We, we come out, like I say, tooting an estate in tooting back. And uh, my dad was one of 11, but I was the only player that come through the family. So I had nobody to navigate me 
through my career to tell me don't do this don't do that so I just basically just winged it really and I like I say I had many pitfalls I you know I got involved in all the drinking culture and going out too much and all that kind of stuff so I just thought listen I'd made a lot a few mistakes who am I to go and tell a young 18 19 year old that you know you're going to be a pro or you ain't going to be a pro or I'm going to be that coach that's going to burst their bubble. I said, you know what, that's not for me, but I need to stay in football in some capacity because it's all I've ever known. And I've played with some great players, Mark Bright and Ian Wright and Kevin Phillips and David Colony and the list stand Colin Moore, the list goes on and a lot of good managers. So I just thought I can represent them. I can represent them. I can be their agent. I can do their deals. I know most of the people in the footballing industry that I've played with or played against. But I've got the added bonus that of the pitfalls that I fell down, if I can navigate the guys as to when they get to the edge of that cliff, not to go down that route, maybe go this way, then I could have a bit of success. And I've got 125, 130 players later. Jesus, that many. And uh, things are going really well. And, um, it's, Rio, it's Rio Ferdinand saying to do with you, work for you. Yeah, I I I got Rio, I become Rio's agent ten years ago, so his last two deals at Man United, um, and I look after him now in transition. Uh, obviously, Mick McCarthy, Chris Wilder, the Sheffield United manager. Right, uh, we, someone someone gave me your your brother-in-law gave me your number. Yeah, and uh, he just contacted me on 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 the Alliance TV Facebook, and when I added the number into my phone book. I looked on and your profile picture was Chris Wilder and I thought this is a why not. Yeah. <laughs> I saw what's he why. Yeah, no, I looked at I represent Chris who What's a manager he is, by the way. Yeah, coming from the lower lower leagues. And he's a bit like Sheffield United. He's a little bit like Mill, you know, it's like a that 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 steel city, you know, he he demands hundred percent, you know. What I'll go look back on my time at Millwall and I think to myself giving 100% and running around and chasing lost causes and and giving everything is, is a gimme. It's what the, port, the supporters expect, you know. They're, they're, they're from some, some dockers or a lot of the, some hardship around them. They met some, some areas without South London, expensive to take your kids. Running around is a gimme, you know. So you, if you do that and then you, you go and do a little bit of magic or you create a little bit of magic or... You know, then the fans will accept that. It's if you start being a little bit lazy or you you, you don't chase lost causes, and then you, 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 your time there ain't gonna ain't gonna last too long. So, you got any Millwall players on your books? Yeah, I mean, I've had John Marquez and John come through. You know, um, and again had a few opportunities. Probably got in the team a little bit too young, and then you know didn't score some goals, and then. And now he's gone and carved a career career out for himself, doing really, really well. I think there's one boy to look out for, uh, that being a forward myself. And I, I, he's, he's, his dad played at me all, Gary Alexandra. And there's a boy, George Alexander. Yeah, George, yeah. 18 years old, scored 15 goals last year in the 23s. Um, Millwall lover, one of their own. How he's not being... Fast track to the first team. I don't know. I don't know what more he can do. We know that the fans love one of their own. He's a forward. Mm. Uh, I agree, mate. I've seen him play. He's, he's just a natural goal scorer. And I, I, goal scorer. I fully agree. There's a couple in the first team who I won't name. But um, especially now with this corona going on, I think you might see a lot of players, you know, not getting contracts and youth, younger players getting more of a chance. So 
hopefully that might materialise. Do you think that might happen? Yeah, yeah, I hope so. But then again, in general, I'm not just talking about George. Just in general, with no, no, no forget George. I mean, yeah. listen, I'm just saying when I when I say George, I'm just I'm just thinking about an 18 year old scored 15 goals in. He's no different to where me and Stan Collymore was back then. And then we get an opportunity by a manager that wants to put the kids in. I've got a couple of players at Norwich that I represent, and one of them, say, being Ben Godfrey at 18, 19, Farkey, the manager, put them in. Same as Max Aaron. Same as Todd Campwell, they got put into the first team. And mm. now they're probably all worth 25, 30 million as, as young 20-year-old um, British players, English mm. players, that if Norwich were to go down, they could sell those players that could keep that club afloat for the next five years. So it's all right producing young talent, but you need a manager that's going to have the balls to put them in. Because ultimately you could have... The, if, if there's a manager like Farkey that never put them into that Norwich team, they probably wouldn't have ever fallen across what they've got, the assets that they've got. So whether it's George or two or three of the younger players at Millwall that's knocking on the door 18, 19, put them in. Because if you put them in and they're thrive, they're worth £10 million. Mm. And that could keep Millwall afloat or two of those players that they went and sold could put enough of a transfer fee together a bit like what Brentford's done, in order for them to go and buy and go and put uh, a promotion assault forward in order to go and get to the Premier League. Mm. You have to put these kids in. And like I say, Millwall love, a, love one of their own. They will sing and they will, they will chant for you and give you that extra little bit of time because they feel that they've come from the stands or they've come from a local community. And I think that's what the club's all about. But the manager, at some point, needs to show a bit of bollocks and put him in or put them in to be mm. a success. Or you could have future England players there, but if you're not going to see them or no one's going to trust them, you're never going to know. And then they end up then going and like the likes of Lewis Graben and people like that coming back, coming back and haunting them in years to come. They should be playing in Millwall shirts. Yeah, yeah. Well, it's getting back to saying not just players... But managers, there's going to be a lot of people watching this, putting two and two together and thinking, oh, Jamie Morley, Mick McCarthy. So as I said to you in, on text last week, obviously, if you get Mick McCarthy on Lions TV, you'll get 20% of zero. So it, it wouldn't be a bad deal for you. <laughs> yeah, listen, he owes me a few quid anyway. <laughs> listen, if I could get the big man on, then listen, he loves the place. He still goes back there now. He's got fond memories. You know, he says to me, it's the only club he's ever managed or ever, ever club he's ever been to that he could get out of his car to be going and doing a talk sport um, commentary. And as he gets out of his car, there'll be an eight-year-old calling him a C-U-N-T. And then as he approaches the ticket office to get his tickets, you've got people going, all right, Gaffer, how are you? We love you. Oh, it's never been the same since. Come back. We want you back. And then he gets his tickets and goes in a turnstile and he is... There he is, the effing C-U-N-T. What a prick he was. He says he's never seen such versatility of a love-hate kind of mould of a football club. And, you know, like I say, when you sign yourself up to Millwall, that's what you, that's what you, that's what you get. It's warts and all. You've got to endear yourself to that culture or, you know, it's sink or swim. But anybody that's been in that environment, you just can't replicate it. Anywhere else you go, people always come back to those type of times they had there. So it's got to be a special place. Right. Two things we haven't covered just quickly before I forget 
is we didn't uh, discuss your strike partner for a lot of your time at the club, John Goodman. What was it like playing with John? What was he like? Did you get on personally with him as well and yeah. old Elvis? Yeah, I think you have to really for any, whether it's that me and John or you want you want to go and, and or Sheringham and Cascarino or, or Dwight York and Andy Cole or Sheringham and, I mean, uh, Shearer and Sutton. Yeah. Whenever you've got any type of a, uh, success... I think you nine times out of ten you get on and uh, off the pitch, or you respect the way that you play. I think we both knew each other's strengths. John was very quick and powerful, and he wanted the ball over the top. You know, I I, I like to use run the channels, but I could also accept the ball to feet. Or you know, I was more probably a more of a natural finisher than John. He was more powerful and more pacey than me. But I think we complemented each other. But but what what I liked about him is whatever weaknesses he felt he had in his game, whether that was left foot finishing or just finishing in general or heading. Like I say, going back to those forty five minutes, one hour sessions every morning to a man, we was there with Taff working on it in order to get better, pushing each other to get better. Uh, on a daily basis and that's what got him his move to the Premier League and, and he can say you know he won and he went and scored and played games in the Premier League and from somebody that came into Millwall as a non-league player mm. Millwall was great for him he was great for Millwall and it gave him the platform to go on and play in the Premier League and go and achieve some you know some some memorable moments for himself but mm. it wasn't it wasn't just blessed with pure ability he organically developed into a player because, you know, he worked his bollocks off. And I think, like I say, no matter who who come into that dressing room, some had natural ability like Jimmy White, if we're talking football uh, snooker terms, mm. some had natural ability like your Jimmy Whites or your Ronnie O'Sullivan's, but then you had your, your players like your Steve Davises or your Stephen Hendry's that become that good because they played for seven, eight hours a day. They practice seven to become the best. But but you had to buy into the Millwall way and the Millwall philosophy. And if you didn't, you got fucked off. Mate, and speaking to you tonight, but not just tonight, over the last couple of weeks, we've been talking quite a lot and you've been saying you're looking forward to it and I remember this, I remember that. Like You do genuinely look back on your time here at Four Memories. So it might be difficult, but if you could pick one standout memory from your time at the club, what would it be? Well, it's got to be at Upton Park against Millwall versus West Ham, the rivals, uh, live on the London match. And um, I remember the gaffer before the game uh, just amping everybody up. Behind the goal as we walked out, I, uh, as my, you know, I just looked to my right and I see the back end of, of Upton Park. Wherever it held, six, seven, eight, ten, ten thousand was just blue blue and white scenes that I've never seen before and we lined up put the ball down and then with what within one minute Mally Malcolm Allen he, he just put me in and I took a touch that just took Steve Potts out of the game and then I, I was just one-on-one -on -one with McCl Ludo McCloskey Ludo McCloskey and I just sort of outside of the foot just sort of nutsed him into the bottom bag and then it just opened up the fans were there and I just thought, wow, this was like, if you could bottle that moment, um, then that would be something that I, I could never be replaced. If So if you could bottle it. And I remember having my fans, my brother, my fans, my family, 
all behind the goal and it was just a memory that you know you couldn't replicate that was one that was massive for me another one when I'd like seven eight games into my league career really with Millwall after playing in a lot of my I played in the Premier League six times for Crystal Palace um, but then I got me moved to Millwall and then after six or seven games at Christmas I found myself at, um, at St James's Park they were like riding high we were second or third in the league at St James's Park 30 40,000 mm. and I put us one up uh, about in the 20th minute kind of robbed Kevin Scott, I think it was, or Brian Kilcline, just just kind of chased the ball down, the ball ricocheted out, and Cerny check come out, and I just clipped it over him, and I'm just pinching myself, thinking, you know, I was playing combination football, you know, two three months ago, and now I've scored a goal at St James's Park, and it was just them kind of feelings, really, the feelings that you know Mill gave me that opportunity, and that I'll be forever thankful to uh, to know to, to the to the club, Mick McCarthy. Uh, the supporters that even to this day now with generations that were old enough I'm nearly 48, 49 so if you were there you were probably 70 or 80 so the young generation don't know or weren't there but I still nowadays bump into somebody down at Bromley Football Club or if I take my son to Mill to watch a game um, they'll still say to me now I remember that game at St James's Park or remember that goal at Upton Park and it goes a long way, really, to to uh, to, to for all the the, the, the bad at times, the bad um, the bad news that, that the Mills supporters to, uh, the Mills supporters get. Uh, you know, they're very intelligent and they're due diligent in terms of their football and very passionate. So to give them that, if anything, back, um, I take that. Brilliant, Jamie. It's been an absolute pleasure, mate. Thanks for your time. Thank you and thank you for the opportunity and uh, like I say, look back on fond memories. Top man. Cheers, mate. Thank you. Cheers. Thank you.